This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Over the next few days, we'll preview all the groups ahead of the World Cup at what could be described as an informative or possibly basic level. Questions like, who is their manager? Do they have any good players? Do they have any other good players? So today, Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal and the Dutch from Group A, England, Wales, USA and Iran from Group B, including a very emotional WhatsApp voice note from Ellis James, even though I haven't heard it yet. Also, we'll bring you extended specials on the off-the-pitch stuff and today, very simply, how we ended up here from that day back in 2010 when Seth Blatter announced Qatar would host the World Cup. If this time, we'll give some oxygen to two men who really don't need it, one of whom is unhappy with Eric Ten Hag. All that plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Jonathan Liu, welcome. Hi. Hello, Ed Aarons. Hi, Max. And hello, the Football Supporters Association Football Writer of the Year, Barney Ronick. Congratulations to you. Hello, Max. Uh, and congratulations to you too. As, that's um, what I was hoping for, yeah. Congratulations to everyone and to you for the radio show. Oh, that's very kind of you. But yeah, thank you to the listeners of the pod who voted for us because I basically begged you enough time so we can go on about it for another year. Uh, so look, we're going to do Group A in Part 1 and then B in Part 2. That seems sensible. Bear Jones says, who is in Group A and Group B of the World Cup? I don't know. So look, we've covered that off already in the intro, but I like that level of question. Uh, Michael says, will there be more Qatar fans or more paid Qatari Ecuador fans at the first game? It's a good question. And FPL Tractor says, is Group A the lowest quality group in World Cup history? The answer must be no, but it's a poor one, right? He says, Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, Netherlands. Uh, Ed, is it the poorest group in World Cup history? I don't think so, no. I think I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, although, yeah, you have to question how strong, you know, as hosts, um, looking back over the years, uh, I think, well, I, was, I remember South Africa very well in 2010. I think they were the first hosts to not make it out of the group. And I think this time there's probably quite a good chance of that. Although I think Qatar will probably be, I mean, uh, yeah, not. I'm not sure how much better, but I think they'll be better than most people think because you've got to remember this is a team that's been, well, how well, at least a decade in the making, isn't it? And they've gone through a whole process of, you know, including setting up academy, the Aspire academies around the world. And it's quite, you know, that's a very long story of how they've got to this place and, probably better than most people expected. That's not to say I know anything about any of their players, to be honest with you. That's why you're here. That's yeah, exactly. But I, I I know that they've got less naturalised players than I think people probably would expect. Uh, supposedly only three who've been naturalised as as adults, 
But apart from that, yeah, I, I don't know a lot about them. And they, they've, they've got a Spanish manager called Felix Sanchez. But I, as as to the rest of the group, I, you know, Senegal and, and Holland, or the Netherlands, sorry, I think they're pretty strong. I think they're both pretty strong. You know, they're, they're potentially, well, I mean, Senegal is a lot down to Sadio Mane, and maybe we'll talk about that a bit later. But they are a strong team. They The African champions. And, uh, yeah, it's going to rely a lot on them having him, perhaps. But... And also the Netherlands are, you know, they haven't been at the World Cup for a while. Back under Van Gaal, they're going to be decent, I think. And then Ecuador, well, I mean, to qualify in South America, you've got to be pretty strong. And they've knocked out Chile and Peru, Colombia, who aren't there. So I don't think it's anywhere near the weakest uh, group ever, actually. Um, no, I don't think so either. Um, I mean, Qatar are the current Asian champions, uh, even though... Um, which I think surprised even them. I think what's interesting, what Ed uh, touched on there, is the question of their players. Ten of the squad were not born in, in Qatar. They've got players from Algeria, Portugal, France, Ghana, Egypt, which you look at and kind of think, oh, well, they've just hired a bunch of mercenaries. But it's more complicated than that. Um, the The... It's the region is quite migratory. You know, people move around. You don't. It's it's a hard place to live. It's a transactional place. There is overlap, so it's not it's not so unusual to be born somewhere else. And also, um, there's a, the, the most complicated thing is it's not clear how many of these Qatar players are actual citizens because you can be born in Qatar and not be a citizen. And being a citizen is a big deal. You get real privileges um, that you don't get as a non-citizen, but it kind of goes through the lineage of your family. So if you're born to overseas parents in Qatar, you're not necessarily a citizen. So this, I find that very strange that they could be playing an entire team of people who are not actually citizens of Qatar, but are qualified to play for them. But it shows it's a bit more complex than simply bringing in a Brazilian or something. Um, and we should probably treat it slightly more in a more nuanced way because this is a tiny nation you know it's basically an oil rig isn't it in the desert it's not going to have people who've lived there for five generations uh, in the same house in the welsh valleys or whatever so yeah i think we need a little bit of latitude on that um i just wanted to to, to come in on um weakest world cup groups i think group a from from russia four years ago russia egypt uruguay saudi arabia says hi and um and then there were Japan's group in, in 2002, which had which also had Russia and Tunisia and not good Belgium, but shit Belgium. Uh, that, that, that's an odd one. Yeah. And then, um, and then there was, there was a group, uh, I think it was group three or group four from 1950, because a load of teams pulled out. It, it just consisted of Uruguay and Bolivia. And there was one, there was one game in it, which Uruguay won 8-0. Was it top two go through or was it, or was there some jeopardy? Just the group winners, and so okay. Uruguay qualified for the for the final four based on on beating Bolivia eight uh, nil. So so there is there is that. I mean, it, it's it's actually pretty good. I mean, Senegal. If you if you go through the world rankings and they're sort of um, you know I know that they're, they're imperfect, but Senegal are, are a top half team. There are sixteen teams ranked lower than Senegal in in the world rankings. And um, you know the, the thing about Qatar is we don't we just don't really know how how good they are. You know they have literally been pointed at this at this tournament for 12 years they've had time to you know to to buy people and to train them and develop them and a lot of them have come through this as aspire academy which i think has has tim cahill as its sporting director now you know they, they've they've basically been hothousing an entire football not just a team not just a squad but a whole culture 
for for years and it's probable that they're not very good but i think that the, the key is we don't we don't really know we don't know what they're keeping back we don't know what they've been doing to these players you know in in their in, you know they, they've been they've been training they've been training for this world cup for the last four years while everyone in europe has been, been kicking six shades of shit out of each other in the domestic leagues so you know there there is kind of unknown there we don't you know we saw with russia four years ago who i think are a lot you know potentially a lot worse than qatar are now um so i, I think it's, it's gonna be really interesting to see how they do because i think they'll I think they'll do okay. So yeah, their manager is Felix Sanchez, uh, who began as a coach of the Barcelona youth team between 96 and 2006 before moving to Qatar and coaching their full-time, including the national youth teams under 19s and under 23 levels. Their domestic league, the Qatar Stars League, has been on pause since the middle of September as the national team entered an early and intensive pre-tournament training uh, camp. Are you literally just reading Wikipedia here? I'm reading the excellent work of producer Silas. I feel he's done the work. It would be rude. And this is kind of information that I've read this morning and thought, oh, this is good. I didn't know this. I imagine listeners don't know this, but it, I am reading a list. He's got some key players for us. Al Moez Ali, 26 years old, uh, the nation's joint all-time top scorer, 42 goals in eight games. Um, he plays for the Qatari mm. club Al Duhail. In eight games? 42 goals in eight games. Yeah, 89 games. I'm quite jet lagged. Uh, you are. 42 and <laughs> oh, eight. He's been sorry. hothoused, but he's been hothoused. And he's. I was going to say, he's, he's going like, to do he's well. Like Uber. He's like, he's twice the size of Erling Braut Harlan. <laughs> um, Akram Afif um, and Bassam Al Rawi, someone to look, uh, two players to look out for. Um, should, should we talk about the Dutch a bit? Because, I mean, Van Harlan himself, Barney, is a fascinating guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he, um, he is a fascinating I mean, He's a fascinating guy, but he's also a fascinating point in his existence. Um, I mean, essentially, he um, is dying, and this will be his last job. He, um, I mean, I watched that Dutch language. I think you now get it on Netflix, actually, in English, the Dutch language documentary, which follows um, him through the World Cup campaign a bit. It's a brilliant film. It's made by a proper director. It's called Lewis, and I really advise watching it. And you realise that... The players didn't know that he was unwell while he was training him for the final qualifiers. He was going to hospital, spending the night in hospital after games. He spent quite a lot of it in a wheelchair, uh, in a, you know, in real pain. He had 25 radiation therapy sessions and he is not well. It's very aggressive cancer, but the, his obsession with football is totally well. You know, he is... He's just more Van Hal, and the whole thing of him being a bit cranky and weird, and oh, it's funny, mad Napoleon hat Van Hal, has kind of narrowed to him being this kind of really agreeable, fun, sharp kind of granddad of football figure. And the Netherlands are playing Qatar on, I think, the around the 29th or the 30th of November, final group game. And something will happen in that because he's already been kind of in a war of words with, um, you know, Qatar Supreme Legacy Delivery Committee about, I mean, he was criticizing FIFA saying this is a joke. This is just, but they took it very personally in Qatar and assumed when he referred to corruption that he was talking about them, which is stranger than to assume that he wasn't. He was talking about FIFA, but they, for some reason, you know, took it on themselves. But that, that could, he will say anything about how he doesn't care. Uh, that's his thing, and he's determined to be right as always, and he'll keep being determined to be right. So that'll be fascinating. He's got a good young team as well. They're um, they've got really good defenders, and they've got quite a lot of um, sort of energetic young players who have bought into his thing. So you've got this kind of um, you know Professor Professor X figure wheeling the the giant super brain 
football purist with this very young group of players who kind of love him. And it's really fascinating. They've been doing really well. They haven't lost under him. And I think that they could be, they could go go deep, as they say, in the tournament. And it will be really fascinating. Johnny, would you call this, is this a Dutch golden generation? Has the gold slid from Belgium to, to the Netherlands? No, I mean, I wouldn't say so. I mean, it's... It's, it's quite a, a mild Dutch squad. You know, obviously they have, you know, Van Dijk and, and De Ligt and, and um, you know, they have Memphis, Depay up front and they have Frankie de Jong. Yeah, they, they have they have decent players. All, you know, all Dutch sides generally have, you know, decent players, but it's not a, it's not a golden generation. It hasn't, you know, the, the, the talent flow hasn't really, you know, been been uh, been as, as rich as it, as it has been for, in, in Holland for the last, you know, 10, 15 years almost. And, you know, I mean, I think Van Hal is... I, th- I find him fascinating as a, as a bloke. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with with the guy as a, as a personality. There's uh, one of the, the the best football books I've ever read is a is a is, is a book called O'Louis by a, a Dutch journalist called Hugo Boss, which like properly you know he fell out with him like 15 years ago, and, and Van Hal still won't talk to him, and he becomes obsessed with this guy, and you know he, he talks to psychologists and he talks to you know TV person. You know, it, it's an absolutely forensic uh, and very funny study of the guy. Um, so I'm fascinated with him as a, as a, as a as a personality, as a coach, I think he's slightly overrated now. I, if you look at what he's done in the last ten years, you know his, his body of work um, until about twenty twelve stands. You know, it really, it really stands up. Um, and then, what's what's he really done in the last decade? You know, the, the, the Holland in, in the World Cup in twenty fourteen. Everything was kind of presented. This it was this sort of Van Hal genius act, but really it was Schneider and Robin and Van Persie doing doing great things. I don't think anyone thinks he's a genius. I mean, he's clearly like an old man who had his his time. No, everything everything he does is kind of is still kind of filtered through this through this uh, kind of uh, this prism of you know of Van Hal's this kind of you know mad genius type figure, and I think he's he's he's, he's actually kind of a <laughs> he's. A- He's kind of ludicrous. He's completely inflexible, and um, but that's what's like you say. That's what's fascinating about him. Um, I mean, the Alkmaar winning the league with Alkmaar was kind of cool. That was great. Yeah, um, that was a. I mean, until that was a good achievement. Until Bayern, basically, he was like undoubtedly one of the best coaches in the world. But you know, his his what's what's his what's his big idea now? It's it's you know playing playing through the wingbacks, which is, you know, I, I don't think he's a, he's a groundbreaking coach, you know, and, and it's not that they won't do well. I just don't think that Van Gaal is necessarily this kind of added X factor that's going to, that's going to take Holland deep. If they, if they do it, it's going to be because of, you know, some very competent players. Yeah. It's got, um, you know, Cody um, Gakpo as well, um, who's a target for lots of size in the Premier League. Javi Simmons, 19 year old PSV players, hasn't played for the Netherlands yet. Brilliantly, they could, if it's not going well, play a front three of Wout Weghorst, Luke de Jong and Vincent Janssen, which is will be my absolute dream of <laughs> absolutely getting it launched. Um, and uh, so that is the, the Netherlands. Ed, you just, you've landed literally from Senegal, where I presume you've been on a fact-finding mission ahead of this exact podcast. Yeah, it was an amazing trip. And just, just the, the first thing about Senegal is that the, the sporting culture there is unbelievable. I, mean, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. I, on the beaches around the country at five o'clock when the, when it gets a bit cooler there's just hundreds and hundreds of people on the beach mainly playing football but also jogging doing strange this strange thing called footing which is like a sort of stationary uh 
exercise specifically kind of for your legs for football and it's like a loads of these guys doing it on the side of the on the side of the beach and what is how does that could you explain it's kind of you sort of shuffle backwards and like do squats and then shuffle backwards again and that's what one of them and it's it's very much sort of like aerobics but for your legs and done on the beach I, I didn't really give it a go. I just sort of watched it all, and the like. But, but it's obviously good for playing football uh, on the beach. And I think Senegal won the beach soccer title for Africa for the last five editions or something like that. They're 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 really good. And and there's nothing harder than playing football on the beach. It's the most energy sapping thing on earth, isn't it? I did it once. A three a three aside, my team we managed to we managed to nick the win just by sort of sitting deep you know standing in front of the very small they always have very small goals like sort yeah of yeah that's the one meter wide get the ball and then on the break you know classic sort of can't park you can't park the bus in a three aside on the beach we did yeah. we did really we did <laughs> but they, it was effective normally you get you know a massive goal fest because both teams are quite literally on the beach <laughs> but anyway yeah sorry the back to the football the, i mean senegal's team is it it's been an evolution for well, similarly to almost as long as Qatar, but this has been a bit more, you know, organic, I suppose, because it's all been about the, the coach, Aliou Cisse, and this generation of players led by Sadio Mane, who obviously is in a race against time to play any sort of part, uh, at least in the group stages, I think. And we're going to find out more in the next couple of days, but it's not looking great as as of last week, but we will see. Um, but there are, the thing about Senegal is there is so much talent there. It's it's only got 14 million people that's quite small in population terms in, in africa but the amount of players that everybody knows are in the in the premier league and all the top leagues in in europe and really everybody just going around the country asking how they felt about the world cup you know the cheesy classic question how are you going to get on they're pretty confident they're pretty confident at least you know quarter final and then obviously semi-final would be historic for an african team if they could do that do you i mean, do re- I mean realistically because they've got, I mean, without Mar- without Mane, exactly, and that's the that this was kind of before the injury, and then once the injury had came along, uh, there's a few doubts there, but they have people who can perhaps step up, like Ismail Assar, I think is a seriously underrated player. I know he's in the championship these days, but they'll be hoping that he can, you know, step up as the creative source. They have a little bit of a problem up front because they don't have an established striker. Uh, so there's a few options there. This guy, Nicola Jackson, who's come on the scene recently, he's a bit of a wild card. But they're, you know, they're solid throughout. And, and, and as I said, the manager, Aliou Cisse, is fantastic tournament manager. He's, you know, look at their record at AFCON. They got to the final in the previous one and then obviously won it for the first time. Very much a tournament team uh, with a bit of experience. So uh, if they can get off to a good start, obviously, against the Netherlands first up, it's going to be tough. So I think if they can avoid defeat in that one, then they'll have a good chance of getting through. And then obviously this group potentially could play England or Wales in the next round. Uh, so that, that could be interesting matchups looking further ahead. Uh, Ecuador are managed by Gustavo Alfaro. Back to Wikipedia, Barney. Um, a bit of a journeyman, Argentinian manager who's managed all over South America, um, became the coach of the Ecuadorian national team in 2020, um, uh, came in to bring some stability after short and unsuccessful tenures of Hernan Dario Gomez, Jorge Celico, and Jordi Cruyff, who did manage Ecuador but never took charge of a match, which is I had absolutely no idea that Jordi Cruyff would go in there. Are they the uh, uh, the youngest team to qualify from South America? Um, and Chile and Peru tried to kick them out. 
because they fielded an ineligible player. Byron David Castillo, FIFA, agreed that they fielded an ineligible player during qualifying, but they have a three-point penalty for the 2026 qualifying instead. Johnny, Ecuador. Yeah, it's a really exciting young team. They were um, South American uh, under-20 champions, I think, in, in 2019. And then the same year, they reached the semis of the world under 20 championships so you know they are you know there, there was there was this ecuadorian golden generation about, about a decade ago and you know there's, there's now uh, a really new exciting generation you know i think three of them play at brighton right estupinian and, and moses caicedo and um uh sarmiento and uh they still have an N- valencia still still going strong and um you know they they, they i think you know they are one of the lowest ranked teams in the tournament, but they are also, and every, you know, this thing, you know, the, the reputation they have is that they just, they just do it at altitude. And, and as soon as they get down to, to solid ground, you know, they're, they're, they're nowhere, but I think they're, they're slightly, you know, in qualifying, they, they slightly defy that a little bit. I mean, and um, they are, I mean, it's a very, it's a very sea it's level, very sea level Johnny, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I, I like the idea that altitude involves actually playing yes. in the yeah. air. You're right. It's funny what you say though, because they are a young team, but like, and they are an exciting team. But if you look at their results, their last three games are a nil-nil against Saudi Arabia, nil-nil against Iran, and a nil-nil against Japan. <laughs> they, they, they've they've scored him. one goal against Cape Verde. Um, there was not a penalty in their last five games. They haven't conceded for 10 hours. Every single game is just <laughs> nil-nil. But they, but, <laughs> the, but they are young and sort of exciting. Look, the thing is, they play an, an attacking 4-3-3 lineup. They actually play, they play a more attacking lineup than England, but um, haven't conceded a goal for 10 hours and have scored one in five games, which is... Maybe, maybe they're due. They're due. Of and they're a potential banana skin team, which which I think is is fitting because they are the world's biggest exporter of bananas. <laughs> Senegal must be up there as well, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I think. Do you have a list, or do you only have the one? I, I, I only needed. I only need you one. You have the top one. For, okay. Well, that's true. Um, okay, well, I feel like we've done it. I think we've done Group A. We've done it justice, um, and we'll be back in part two with Group B. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Uh, welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, still a handful of tickets left for Thursday night at Earth in Hackney and billions of tickets left for the live stream around the world. Uh, me, Lars Sivertson, Barry Glendening, Ellis James 
And uh, yeah, come along, get your tickets from theguardian.com slash Guardian Live. It would be great if it is a complete sellout. Um, Dave says, uh, Carlos Quiroz teams just defend. Wales love to defend. Southgate is the ultimate footballing pessimist. And the USA are super fit but lacking inspiration with no time for attacking patterns to form and teams to gel. I'm worried this will be the worst group stage. <laughs> this will be the worst group in history. Um, so look, Group A might be. Group B might be. Really looking forward to this World Cup. England, Iran, USA and Wales. England, here we go. Uh, they won the World Cup in 1966. <laughs> do I need to carry on? Um, look, we're obviously going to talk about England a lot as the tournament carries on, so we don't need to do buckets of time on this. Um, Barney, your your sort of loose thoughts on the squad and, and, and how you think they'll fare. I think it's a good squad. I think uh, they Gareth Southgate picked uh, his best players. Um, you <laughs> obviously there's a big Ivan Tony thing because um, he didn't pick Ivan Tony, but people just have to complain about something. So that's that. Uh, the problem is, uh, you know, how do you win a World Cup? You you uh, you basically play quite negative football. Uh, you have a loyal loyalty to a core group of players, and then you try and win the key details in the big games which generally involves little switches and clever tactical zings. And that's where they've fallen down. You know, Southgate's in-game in management of those details has not been good or has been other managers have done that slightly better. So if, I, I don't know. I mean, if he, I, I don't feel that optimistic about their chances, but if they can do all those things, which he does, and they'll be solid and it'll be the same system and the same players, I think I worry they might slightly struggle to score uh, goals um, outside of Kane and Sterling. No one really scores and Sterling seems to be a wing back and Kane has been exhausted for six years. Um, it's just really painful to watch him much as I love him. Spurs fans, sorry. Uh, I don't know. I reckon they'll probably lose in the quarterfinals. It's interesting, those in-game management things and, and that will certainly, you know, if and when England go out, that'll be the moment. It'll be some key moment. You wonder if Mary, perhaps Gareth Southgate I'm sort of criticising him before a tournament it feels ridiculous. Like, could have changed his backroom stuff. Could have brought in like somebody who's really good at that. Like, you know, <laughs> who, who's really good at that? Who's the magic man? Who? Ah, oh, Gareth. Oh. Hold on. There's an in-game tactical detail happening. Bring forward <laughs> Jonathan <laughs> Wilson. Uh, you know, uh, but well, there must be someone, Barney, wasn't there? There are lots of people who are sort of, you know, are coaches, and like there are lots of people who are like really brilliant on the training ground. You know, assistant managers who are like really good. I don't, you know, I don't know how good Steve Holland is. Well, he had a, Steve Holland had a good reputation with doing stuff like that, didn't he? Being the sort of uh, in-game guy, uh, you know, what what do we need, Steve? Like tinker in-game, but yeah, I think I think Barney's right. That's that has been England's problem. Sorry, I, I, just to, he sticks too rigidly to the plan, and I think is that's going to be the key, especially in this World Cup, is flexibility. You know, especially with players in form and uh, uh, you know, with no build-up games at all um just players who are, are in form are, are going to have a good chance of just coming from being completely out of the squad somebody like madison or ben white potentially could be straight into the team maybe not madison but i think madison somebody like white could potentially start you know in the first game because he's playing well at the moment yeah i mean I, there was an interesting i don't know if you saw wayne rooney's column in the sunday times uh which i thought was really interesting because he, he went into basically more detail than i've ever seen in a, in a kind of an ex-player column about how he, he thought England should line up. And, you know, he sketched it out on a piece of paper and everything. So basically you have four, you have four at the back and you have Alexander-Arnold as the, your, your right back pushing high. 
and you know do basically doing what he does best and then you have Luke Shaw on the other side and he sort of tucks into midfield and then you have Foden on the left and, and so they're basically like a 4-4-1-1 out of possession but you have Foden on the left you have Saka on the right but when 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 Alexander-Arnold pushes up Saka comes in and you have and the interesting thing is you have Bellingham almost as a kind of a number 10 and so in your build-up, you you have Bellingham and Saka or Sterling as your sort of two number tens in that area, and, and just sort of rotating with Kane. And I thought that was really interesting because it seems to cover a lot of uh, England's weaknesses while also, you know, capitalising on on what I think we all know are, the, are their strengths, which is their creative players and and kind of their, their attacking options. And that's that's the balance really, because England are in that weird sort of zone where. There are team like seventy percent of teams in this tournament are going to set up to to get a nil nil against them. You know, Wales, Iran, USA will all be delighted to 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 just stick eleven men behind the ball and 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 England and let England break them down. And once they get further into the tournament, that kind of dynamic shifts completely. You get teams who are going to want to dominate the ball against them. And finding that balance, I think, is the one thing that Southgate has done really well in his two tournaments. And that that's going to be the key. I I, I don't. I don't think they'll do that well. I think quarterfinals is probably optimistic. I, I think there's there's probably there's a small chance they go out in the group stage, and I can't I can't see them going past the last sixteen. They might they might if they get you know Qatar or somebody in the last sixteen, but I I don't I don't think they're good enough. I don't know if I can handle how big the conversation about. Trent Alexander-Arnold getting caught in behind him at some point uh, if he plays instead of Trippier. Um, but look, it's interesting, maybe Wayne Rooney's the tactical genius that should be there, make tinkering in game. It was really interesting. I mean, stuff that I didn't, I hadn't thought of. Like you have, you have, so basically Harry Kane, you, you, Harry Kane is, is the most, one of the most important defensive players because what Kane can do is show the opposition to one side of the pitch. And once you're only defending one side of the pitch and, and you know where the ball's going to be funneled, it's a lot easier to defend against. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. It was interesting. Um, Barney, any further thoughts or shall I move on to Wales? Uh, no, not really. I mean, um, I think that Wayne Rooney's sort of blueprint and things like that are really interesting. But, the, the you know, the problem is you'd be asking every single player to do something for the first time. Um, they haven't, you know, Southgate gets gets criticised for not, correctly, for not changing things. But the only way he gets to those points where he's found out for not changing things is by not changing things. That's his method. Do something slightly weird, Gareth, you know, get funky. And then he will end up <laughs> losing to inferior teams because that's just like asking the wrong man to dance. And they're all basically doing what they're, they're all basically doing what they do for their clubs. Bellingham, Foden, uh, Saka, you know, Trent, they're, all, they're, all, they're all doing what they do for their club. And Phillips, you know, Calvin Phillips, who... But doing that with entirely different footballers, uh, in a different kind of football. It's not club football. You're not on the training pitch drilling this stuff. You have a different manager, different speed of game, and different teammates. I mean, it's it's totally different to anything you've ever done before. And to suddenly do that... You would definitely. This is where you end up with Wayne Rooney playing in midfield in Euro 2016 because that seemed like a good idea on paper as well, and then it wasn't a good idea um, in the end. Um, yeah, he, he decided a long time ago, didn't he, not to, to to play three at the back and that the four at the back was just not going to happen, even with Maguire, etc. And it's, I, yeah, I can see why because of the lack of build up, and he wants to be. Like Holland, you know, sorry, the Netherlands keep, you know, will, will, will go with their system, three at the back, and every player will know what their role is. 
And that's the same with, that's what Gareth wants. He wants that control. Whereas he started something, I think, you know, it would, it would be much, much, make much more sense to play with four at the back. And, you know, so maybe not Trent in that, that role, because it does leave you a bit open, but yeah, but it's just not going to happen, is it? Unless he suddenly changes his mind at the last minute, which is not Gareth. Well, that could happen. A lot of successful teams in World Cups have made a change um, during the tournament. Well, hopefully, he, hopefully it will. But we'll see, won't we? How, yeah, if it if it goes, if it's plain sailing with three at the back and Maguire stops, finds a bit of form, then that'll be his go-to, I imagine. I thought he might want to have that three-man midfield of Phillips, Rice, and Bellingham. Uh, I think that was, but because Phillips hasn't been fit he hasn't yeah. been able to play that but I think that that would give him the comfort blanket that he craves to play for at the back and it's a good midfield as well you know it's got yeah that'd got, be great I'd love, I'd love to see that mm. Mm. come on Gareth get funky uh, let's go to Wales uh, Ellis James we begin with a voice note of passion and emotion from Ellis James hiya Max it's El here um, I'm recording this on Tuesday the 15th of November so kickoff is in six days time we play our first World Cup game for 64 years at 7 o'clock UK time against the USA. It feels very real now. Um, having felt slightly distant and otherworldly for a long time, because obviously the Premier League season's been in uh, full swing. Now, if you follow the Welsh team, there's no real surprises in terms of the squad. Bale's included. He made every Welsh fan dream a little bit when he came on as a sub in his final game of the MLS season. I don't know if you saw that goal. He must have done where he outjumps a six-foot-six-inch defender to score a 128th-minute equaliser against uh, Philadelphia Union. Before, and this is the bit I really loved, doing a full sprint to the corner flag to celebrate. A sprint, Max, that rolled back the years. Um, Aaron Ramsey played the full 90 in his final game for Nice, which is good. I think he played the full 90 in the previous game as well. He's dyed his hair blonde, a little throwback to Euro 2016. Oh, my God, I... Love him so much. Um, he's only 31. That's the thing. I was Googling him uh, last night. He's, he's still relatively young. If we're going to do well, we need him to play like he did against Turkey at Euro 2020 when he was just exceptional. Joe Allen is the biggest concern. On the Feast of Football podcast I do for the BBC, Danny Gabadon routinely describes Joe as our most important player because we don't really have a replacement for him. His tackling, his distribution, his calmness on the ball. He just brings the best out of Bale and Rambo. He allows them to play, mix on midfield tick. He hasn't played, uh, worryingly, since September the 17th. Um, and Russell Martin, Swansea's manager, admitted that mistakes have been made in his re- rehab. So it's a race against time to get him fit. Very similar, in fact, to Joe Ledley prior to Euro 2016. I don't know if you remember this. He broke his leg on May the 7th. And he made this miraculous recovery and he was able to play in the first game against Slovakia 35 days later. Um, I saw a video on social media the other day, Joe Allen, really going for it on an exercise bike. <laughs> I mean, really going for it, which has lifted my spirits. So fingers crossed he's well enough to play. It's mainly the squad Rob Page would have wanted to have taken. Um, the only big miss is Reese Norrington-Davis, who's injured his hamstring. He is brilliant for Wales. He had a really good Nations League campaign. Scored against the Dutch back in June. He's a very versatile player. He can play as a wing back. He played for us in a back three as well, but he's not on the plane. Um, it's quite a serious hamstring injury, I think. I feel really sorry for him. Um, I feel very sad that he can't be there. The build-up has been obviously slightly different Wales to England. Giant bucket hats have been appearing in towns all over Wales. The FAW social media feed 
has just been fantastic. My, they've made a real fuss over Cliff Jones and Terry Medwin, who are the two surviving members of the 58 team. Both Spurs legends, um, both members of the great Tottenham team and won the double. There's this brilliant video the FAW posted the other day where Terry Medwin, who's 90, and Cliff Jones, who is 87, uh, they met Rob Page, they met some of the players. There's one video where they meet Gareth Bale and Cliff checks that Gareth Bale doesn't smoke, which is only a question a footballer from the 50s and 60s would ask. I just love it so much. What I'd give for a young Cliff Jones to be on the plane. He was a world-class winger in his day. Um, I got to meet him once and the only embarrassing thing was we're the same height. Uh, and I met him this summer, but I was looking at our silhouettes and his silhouette, his silhouette looked far more healthy and able to play football than mine. And I was like 14, he was 86. Um, anyway, it kicks off on uh, Monday night, playing the USA, 7pm kickoff. I mean, what can you say? First World Cup since 1958. Uh, I love you like a brother. Goodbye. Uh, if you'd like to hear more of Ellis, come to the show on Thursday night in Hackney. Uh, how, Johnny, do you rate Wales chances I mean I, I always I always write I always write Wales off I think I thought they would go out you know in the, in the group stage at the Euros and they, they they proved me wrong I thought they'd struggle to qualify for this World Cup and, and they proved me wrong and, and there, there is this kind of weird um, I don't know there's this kind of weird voodoo magic to them which you, you can't you know on paper if you look at their players if you look at um, how they set up you know you would think well there's there's clearly not a huge amount there. They they got you know a couple of extraordinary players, um, but you know essentially they're a journeyman team with Gareth Bale. And you think, well, they should they shouldn't do much. We 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 think we know what you know what they should be capable of in international tournaments. Um, and yeah, they you know they they somehow managed to to play above themselves. And you know going to their first World Cup in in sixty four years, you know they 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 will have this real sense of. Uh, you know, I, I guess you know it's a cliche, but you know, togetherness and and spirits and everyone kind of really mucking in and knowing their jobs, which is is half the battle at an international tournament. If you're all kind of pointing in the same direction and everyone knows their job, and I, I expect that they will again punch above their weight, and they have, you know, quite a weak group. England are probably the one of the, the best seeds they could have got, and and having that. You know, England-Wales dynamic, I think, plays into their hands quite a bit. USA, Iran, they could easily get points there. And then and then you're playing somebody from Group A. So the, the, the path is is there for, for Wales to do something in this tournament. Um, and uh, as ever, it will come to those fine margins, whether they can get those, those counterattacks going, whether they can, they, can, whether they can choose their moments to attack, whether they can withstand all those long spells of pressure and, and, and then take their chances. And big key for more, Ed. I love a big target man at a World Cup. Yeah, absolutely. And he could have, maybe he's the new Hal robson Carney for, for the for the World. I think, you know, Wales are going to be so motivated just for the fact that they're at their first tour, the first World Cup since 1958. It was just, you know, it must be an unbelievable feeling for, for for all the fans looking forward to it. And yeah, they are, they are a tournament team. They've really proven themselves over the last few years that they, they can cope with it and just some, always find a way and I, I think I would fancy them to get through the group. Actually, I mean, Iran and US. I think they can. I think one win against either of those, and you're in a very strong position. And then who knows against England? They could could cause. Well, maybe it's not an upset if they if, if they were to win or draw. 
and form goes out of the window with a derby, doesn't it? I mean, that's I mean, that's the that always happens, doesn't it? They were unlucky in the Euros, weren't they? Did we equalise in the last? We won in the last minute. Was that Daniel Sturridge in the last minute? Yeah, after Joe Hart's uh, yeah excellent dive. Yeah, against that Gareth Bale free kick from about two hundred yards away, wasn't it? Let's talk about the USA um, uh, uh, team, USMNT, managed by Greg Berhalter, um, who uh, was appointed in twenty eighteen after spells in charge of Swedish club Hammarby and MLS side Columbus Crew. Uh, he uh, he had forty four caps himself. Uh, also had a season at Crystal Palace in 0102. I'm going on to these Wikipedia pages and writing things like he won Cigar Smoker of the Year competition in 1973 and uh, he owns an Indian restaurant. He was a steady left back, as I remember. Was he? In a not so steady team. Um, I think it was probably under Trevor Francis in that era. Yeah, the good old days. How how good are the U.S.? I mean, they've got some good players, the U.S. I think from what I understand, a lot of our listeners who are, you know, in the U.S., think the players are good and I'm not quite sure about the manager Barney but how 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 exciting could they be if they were unleashed and Aronson's exciting isn't he and Gio Reyna yeah. as well well I mean anyone unleashed always sounds good doesn't it um you could yeah totally. unleash me and I that sounds exciting <laughs> I uh, feel you're always unleashed yeah Barney. oh yeah that's true no they're quite good I mean they're 16th in the world um they're young and they have some skillful players and uh they call their kit a uniform which I always like and they have one of these preppy kind of managers, which is always good. I like a preppy American manager. He looks like he, you know, models for adult knitwear. Um, uh, I, I think they could beat England. They're, uh, they won't be bothered about playing England. They're athletic and they have some young, skillful players. And England will probably, um, there'll be a pressure on England, you know, to beat them fairly easily, which won't be easy because they're, 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 they're a decent technical team and, and, and they've had time to prepare. I, I think they could be quite good. Um, How vital is Christian Pulisic for them, John? Yeah, he, he is, he's, he's important and, and more so because they don't, they don't really have, I guess, a recognised goal scorer. That's probably their, their biggest Achilles heel, which is, which is strange when you think of some of the, you know, the US teams that have, have gone to World Cups in the past where, you know, you, you think of them as, as really kind of physical outfits, you know, um, but this is this is a very different uh, kind of USA side. They are, you know, they're quick. They play, you know, they play four three three. They they have they they push their fullbacks up really high. They have, you know, DeAndre Yedlin. I think is the only guy who who's played in a World Cup before, and I think he's he's, he's like twenty nine. And and they have Anthony Robinson on the other flank, and then you have yeah you have Pulisic and you have Rayner and and Aronson. And Tyler Adams and Weston McKenney, like really, really, really good, uh, you know, European level technical players. Um, and it, it's just, you know, it's just about whether they can they can find someone to, to put the ball in the net. They have this kind of rotating cast of of potential number nines who whose names I've all forgotten. Uh, and and I think that that's going to be their that's going to be their main issue. Um, but yeah, they they have they have I think a, a, a default style when when they when they come. To, to play against you know when when you, the USA slip up it tends to be against uh kind of lesser teams who just who, who run at them really fast and, and, and counter them whereas against big you know bigger nations or stronger nations they they, they look really solid you know they, they they basically they draw nil nil like Ecuador um and and they, they sit tight and, and they're well organized so really hard I think for England to break down especially if they if they're coming off a you know a draw or a defeat in that Iran game and, and if they if they go into that game needing to win, you could you could really easily see it going going pear shaped for them, 
um, which it, it, for our US listeners is a, is, a, is a British term, meaning things have not gone quite to plan. They've gone, they've gone pear-shaped. Um, uh, do they have do they have pears in in the US? It reminds me of Alan Alan Brazil asking David Ginler on Talksport if they had wasps in France. Was a, a, a real, do they have wasps in France, David? Um, and and, and I, I guess Ed, a bit like Wales, will be desperate to beat England in the way the sporting rivalries work. The US will be desperate to beat England because that's just something I, I sort of, you sort of really sense that in a footballing perspective that'd be really big for for them well is it, is it not the case that they've got uh, they've the won record, one they? they've got one one and drawn one against us haven't they 1950 Belo Horizonte isn't it with the yeah I think he was born in Haiti the uh, the guy who scored the winning goal I can't remember Jogations. there we go thank you Johnny thank you uh, and, and then obviously the Rob Green game which everybody remember as well I was on Key Corker it's an island off Belize in an electrical storm it was Clint Dempsey who scored wasn't it and and as Clint Dempsey and I know everyone in the UK missed the Gerard goal because uh, ITV went to an advert for something for Skittles but, Skittles that was it but Clint Clint Dempsey took a sh- you know hit that P-roller shot right and and then there was an electric like the the, 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 the TV went out there was a power cut for about a minute and it came back and the graphics had 1-1. One, one. And we were like, well, man, that can't be right because there's no way that... We all saw the shot dribbling towards the goal. We were like, well, there's no way that's gone in. But it did. That was a great shame. So, oh, right. So does that mean England are the underdogs against the US? Well, potentially, you know, they've got they've got the history behind them. Um, I think... I, I'm not so sure that they're that great. I think, yeah, they, they've got some decent players. Um, but they did have a bit of a struggle to get through, didn't they, in the end? And it's not it's not the most difficult qualifying section in the world but you know again it's it's difficult it's difficult to uh, see them getting I I think I I think I'm they're not going to get through I'm going to put my neck out and say they're not going to get through this group so I actually think just to segue into Iran if I think that Iran might be better again well not not necessarily dark horses but they certainly have a bit of quality in key positions certainly up front there they have two decent strikers and uh, that's going to be obviously a massive grudge match again that was in 1998 wasn't it that it, Iran played USA the last time in the World Cup and Iran won that game I believe and so that's going to be really interesting to see uh, USA take on Iran and, and obviously there's the the political story in the background in Iran with the uh, with women's rights and all the oppression that's going on the protests and um, Sardar Azmoun has been included in the squad despite his uh, Instagram post in support of some of the the protests and there's a few reports I was reading that um, they've been asked to sign a, a written commitment to sing the national anthem uh, after some of them refused to do it in uh, some warm-up games so there's real a real background to you know England's first opponents and it's going to be really interesting to see because I, I hear that Taremi the striker from Porto and Asmoon although they're both really good and when they do play together give them a great outlet they're not they're not the best of friends apparently they have different yeah they have different views when it comes to these protests and there's a few other players in the squad like that as well. Um, but obviously with Carlos Quirez at the helm, they're probably not going to score any, any goals anyway. So that is the point, isn't it, Barney, that this, they will under Quirez, you know, they will be defended. It will, it will be a grind that England Iran game will be hard and you can, you know, it will be tough for England, but you know, Iran know what Iran want to do in it. Yeah. And um, again, they're, I mean, they have nine domestic base players in the squad. I don't think 
we know a great deal about how it will work out. It's only really Carlos Quiros that's a bit of a, a tell. But they do have strikers who can score goals. They have three strikers in the squad who have 98 goals between them, which is, uh, you know, whoever those goals are against is definitely a thing. And, um, yeah, it could be deathly. It could be could be hard. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to that game. I think it's going to be quite uh, funny uh, and kind of, you know, <laughs> it will be a festival of football. Does anybody think, Johnny, do you think, I mean, because it's four games a day and that feels like it should be no more than three, really. Like the four, like when you get to the fourth, and I know most people, I know we are, you know, I'm going to be sitting just watching them and, you know, I'm very privileged that that's my job. But like, it's hard to watch four football matches in a day for any human, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's like when you get to... Uh, on a Saturday and you've got, you know, obviously they're not all live, but you know, you have a 12.30 kickoff and then you have a three and then you have 5.30 five, five and like, and then you, then you realise that there is a, there is a 7.45 game. Oh fuck, it's Newcastle against Everton. And you know, I should, I should watch this. I should really, I should want to watch this. Um, and yeah, I know, I know full well I'm not going to. And you know, there's probably going to be a bit of that. I think England's game against the USA, is, is that, that's a late game, I think. That's what that, that's a fourth game of the day, I think. Uh, which you know, I, just pace yourselves, guys. I mean, it's going to be a, it's going to be a long month. We, we all need to just you know, it's all, it's, it's all very tempting to throw ourselves into it and and but um, really pick and choose. I mean, I would say opening game. If you want, if you want, if you want to dip in, dip in and out. You want to watch the opening ceremony. You want to watch the you know the the pleasantries at the start. Sure, but I, you know that might be one to I might want to to swerve if I were you. Um, uh, before we end uh, this part, and I know we're not talking about Portugal because they're not in groups A or B, but um, this is the first pub we've done since the f- since Ronaldo's interview with Piers Morgan. Um, uh, Barney, you're shaking your head already. Oh, I mean, it was just, explosive television. What a, is, what, what a scoop. It's vast. An extraordinary it's so bit of big. work. I, mean, I can't really God. I can't even look at it. It's so big. It's looming over me. It's like standing at the bottom of the shard. Uh, so massive. <laughs> no, I mean it's um, built by Qatar, wasn't it? Good, good well, the Shard is owned by yeah. Qatar now. Yeah, I, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's um, I don't know. The whole thing is just asinine, isn't it? Um, basically, Piers Morgan. It's great for his career, and he just has to amplify this stuff and just put it out there with no, don't question it. Just say, oh, you know, that's terrible, Chris. But um, I just feel a bit sad for Ronaldo, really. Um, that this is his this is what he is and who he is and the, the lack of anyone around him to give him any kind of perspective or sense of scale about how sort of, uh, you know, Caesarean, how Napoleonic, how kind of like he, how ridiculously detached he looks from, from any sense of real life or the fact that he's just basically a guy who plays sport and he's not really, not actually a superhero. Um, it just makes me feel a bit sad. I guess we're all responsible for creating this world where that tableau of these two people sitting down, creating headlines by just basically saying, I'm really annoyed because they've disrespected me. Um, I'm just really sad that that's what, what this thing is. And um, maybe it can be a moment of realisation for all of us where we all just stop being like that. <laughs> And Ronaldo thinks, oh, what was I on? What was I on about? I, I, you know, because I find it just laughable, really, and um, uh, even sadder that people will jump up and say this is important. We must stop disres- disrespecting Ronaldo, who is the one person who must be respected at all times. Um, anyway, that's my feeling. 
Yeah, I just quite, I quite like Piers Morgan to be forced to have to interview every player who's currently not getting, you know, Jed, next week, Jed Spence, why this transfer hasn't gone right. You know, force him to do that. Um, uh, Johnny, do you have any salient thoughts on this uh, affair? Or I saw... Sort of loathe to give either of them oxygen, I saw, to be uh, honest. quite a good tweet when it came out, which is the only thing you could, that, that would make me care less about a Cristiano Ronaldo interview is, is learning that Piers Morgan had done it. It's on talk TV. I mean, I didn't, I didn't realize talk TV was still going. You know, it's, it's sort of probably squeezed in between. Uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even tell you who's on talk TV. Does Stan Collymore have a show on there? I don't, you know, I, like, <laughs> Jeremy Kyle. I, 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 I don't know. I, it's, it's. I think he might. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, anyway. Anyway. Um, he'll go somewhere I get I mean let's just play it into Ten Hag's hands doesn't it Ed I mean it's like this is just absolute this is it's actually sort of great for Ten Hag in a way isn't it because now he can just tell him to bugger off yeah exactly and I think that's probably best for everybody that he just goes away so I mean who'd have thought it would have ended like this eh? <laughs> you know the best bit is um, who would have thought it the Man United statement that says you know uh, Man United notes the media coverage regarding an interview by Cristiano Ronaldo. The club will consider its response after the full facts have been established. What exactly do they have to establish? Now he's talking out loud. Like, what's the investigation going to be? It's another show uh, for uh, Piers Morgan. Anyway, um, thanks, chaps. Thanks for looking into Group A and Group B. Uh, I've enjoyed your company. Thanks, Ed. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Johnny. Cheers. Thank you, Barney. Cheers. Bye. Um, uh, there'll be a bit more from Barney in part three um, uh, the first of our specials this one looks at how we got here from the Qatari bid in 2010 to the World Cup kicking off in Doha on Sunday Football Weekly is produced by Silas Gray executive producer is Christian Bennett Welcome back to part three. Before we get to our panel for this bit, uh, I spoke to Barney Ronnie, who you just heard from in this part about being in the room when Qatar won the bid to host the 2022 World Cup. Look, Barney, you were in the room. So uh, I know you've written a piece about it recently. Just take us back to that moment when they announced Qatar and, and what was it like? Uh, well, it, yeah, it was an amazing thing. I mean, I don't think anybody was quite prepared for that room, which was the most... Uh, it's full of the most extraordinary people. It was a, uh, it was you know the people who were in that room that afternoon. Vladimir Putin, Boris Johnson, David Beckham, uh, the Emir of Qatar, Chuck Blazer, Sepp Blatter, Michelle Platini, David Cameron. You know everybody was. It was it was here comes everyone, um, and it was sort of extraordinary to look around and see, it was like a Cold War Steve tableau um, before Cold War Steve existed. <laughs> the winner to organise the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. It was all very confusing. The Qatar thing in particular got a bit lost in the, in the Russia stuff. I was sitting behind the um, Qatari delegation when it was announced and I was actually sitting directly behind Zinedine Zidane and I was looking, I was sort of staring at his skull. I was, I was typing something about, and I, I kind of was momentarily sort of lost staring at the back of his head. He has an amazingly muscular skull. It's totally shiny. It's an athlete's skull. And I was watching the muscles kind of slightly rippling. And, and then I just heard the word Qatar. And everyone next to Zinedine Zidane leapt up and shouted and literally punching the air. And Zidane, the muscles in his scalp 
didn't even clench. I think he was he was surprised. I was surprised. I thought, my God, Qatar. Really? I mean, you forget back then that um, we didn't really know anything about Qatar. Qatar was really this massive outsider. It's a tiny nation. Um, we didn't get our energy from Qatar. Qatar was was just there surely to kind of make up the numbers. And Zidane eventually stood up and started celebrating as well. He was there as a, a bid ambassador. It has to be said that since then, what's happened in those 12 years is Qatar has been proved entirely right. So it was an extraordinary moment. And it feels like somewhere that mo- modern football and also the world has kind of flowed directly from. And to have been there was, is very weird looking back. You put together, and I'm not going to ask you to read the whole list out, but quite an extraordinary who was in the room and sort of then and now what their positions are and were or what's happened to them. And just the amount of the amount of corruption in that room is insane. Yeah, it's incredible. You have to remember that we've normalised this. Like, there's not supposed to be corruption. There should be no corruption. <laughs> but instead, 16 of 22 voting FIFA Exco members have either been banned from football for life since this happened, some kind of stain on their, you know, even even the incidental stuff that they have since denied has happened. Before the vote, two members of the Exco were kind of ruled out from voting because of proven corruption issues against them. I mean, it is incredible. Uh, um, and also just so many other people in that room and around that room have since had very checkered careers. What's amazing is how little of it actually touches the people at the centre. So you seem to have a lot of people uh, being bribed without any obvious information as to who is doing the bribing. It's it's very odd. Someone somewhere must be corrupting these people, unless it's like a self-contained chain of corruption where they, they just do it to each other. But, um, you know, at the centre, there's no proven actual vote rigging bribery allegations against either Qatar or Russia. So... You know, fair play. Finally, how do you feel about going and covering it? I feel like I would rather not be doing that. Um, I don't think on a personal level it's going to be... Oh, it might be a great World Cup, but it's an odd one because you're going to be in the same place going to these games where it just does not feel like the story is football. Not to me, anyway. Um, the idea that you shouldn't go there if you disapprove of it, I find just ridiculous and a, a, a kind of example of how ill thought out a lot of people's kind of logic is we have a free press and we will go there to report on the story which is what a strange world cup this is you don't just leave it to the official cheerleaders um the idea that you're going there to to sort of feather your own nest and make money over is also ridiculous that it doesn't work like that believe me I, i get paid anyway if i go to qatar or not it's just a very weird very weird thing um but to miss it would be would be silly some you have to go and tell the whole story if you can and that's what we'll we'll try and do at the Guardian. Hello and welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, this is the first in our specials leading up to the Qatar World Cup. What we want to do by the time the tournament starts is provide as as complete an overview as possible of life in Qatar, the story of Qatar's successful bid, some of the big themes that you will, of course, have heard about over the last 12 years or so, migrant workers, the LGBTQ+. Plus community, the rights of women, amongst other things. Today, we are simply asking, what is Qatar like? How did we get here? Uh, Philippe Auclair is here, as he will be for a lot of these. Hey, Philippe. Hello, Max. Uh, Barry is here, as usual. Hi, Max. And John McManus, author of Inside Qatar, Hidden Stories from One of the Richest Nations on Earth. John, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Max. 
Barry and I, before uh, before we came in, we were sort of embarrassing ourselves with how little we did actually know about Qatar <laughs> and fighting over who was going to ask, how big is it? Uh, I mean, and, and that's sort of, a, I know it's a very basic question, but I think a lot of people are confused about it's whether it's part of the UAE, where it is exactly, what it, whether it is a country in its own right, all of those questions. Right. And I mean, that's part of the reason that it was very keen to host the tournament is to put it on the map, um, to let people know that it's a peninsula the size of Yorkshire or Devon and Cornwall combined or two thirds of Wallonia or the state of Connecticut. Uh, choose from those as you see fit. Uh, for, for the benefit of the Irish listeners, uh, the size of Kerry and Cork combined, I read somewhere. Thank you. It's a small place um, and it's even smaller. Uh, like the games are not taking place across all that territory as well because like the conurbation is, it, they're pretty much uh, going to happen in Doha with a few kind of um, what I'd call like exurbs, like kind of places outside of the city, but are kind of connected to the city. So an even smaller kind of location for the games. So yeah, obviously completely unprecedented for a World Cup to be in such a small space. John, in your book, you point out that the only 11% of the population of Qatar are Qatari people. And I think it's something like 86% of the population is male because of all the migrant workers. Presumably, vast swaths of that foreign population are, are kind of hidden away in camps. So just walking around day to day in, in Qatar, would, would you be aware of that? that only 11% of the Qatari population are from Qatar. I think that's a really astute point uh, because I don't know, you wouldn't in short. Um, if as a Westerner, the Qatar that you inhabit is one of skyscrapers and shopping malls and very nice hotels. And within those environments, uh, there are disproportionate numbers of Qataris and also women, as in they're very gender mixed. Um, uh, because we're talking about the kind of 10, 15% at the top of the tree. Um, so yeah, it's very possible to visit. It's very possible to live there for many years and be quite unaware how skewed the demographics are. And that actually uh, below kind of a lot of the surface is like a huge number of low-income workers whose lives are completely different, uh, for the most part, not particularly pleasant and who are, you know, kind of creating the, the world in which uh, you or I, when we visit, inhabit. You know, Qatar is a very strange place because on the outside, people might think that it's completely devoid of, of criticism or alternate opinions. And that, that, that isn't actually the case. It's obviously, you know, not a democracy where everybody is free to speak what they want at all times. But neither is it a place where someone, you know, like me, can turn up and do research or, you know, uh, Pete Patterson, the Guardian, I think has visited frequently. Um, you know, it's not a place where um, devoid of uh, an ability to be able to explore some of these dimensions. I mean, we should we should add here um, that um, if you actually some people who have tried to uh, to go to places where they really were not supposed to be have uh, felt the arm of uh, of the law and the law enforcement agencies. Um, and we should also explain it's the first of, of our programs is that you, you're saying this, Philippe, you're saying this, Max, John, everybody, but why don't you have Qatari people on your, on your podcasts? 
why don't you have migrant workers on your podcast? Well, we're going to explain, I'm going to explain uh, why we don't now. The reason is because it's too dangerous for them. And once you've made that point, I think you understand a bit better how we're going to talk about it, why we do not want to endanger the safety of anybody who could give us first-hand testimonies and so forth, that we're going to use first-hand testimonies as much as we can, but that we're not going to have these people talking with us because it would be too dangerous. So, yes, I, I think it was important to make that point now, Max. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and just for clarity, we're talking about possible imprisonment and fines for Qatari nationals here. But I think it is worth asking, John, is that your experience when talking to Qataris about their experience? Yes, in short. Um, in the book, what I decided to do was um, uh, I put like an asterisk after names that I changed <laughs> to keep people anonymous. And I think a good 80 to 90% of the names in the book are asterisks because uh, so few people were uh, willing to go on the record with their own names because, uh, yeah, they feel um, at, at all kind of levels of the the really stratified hierarchy there because they're, they're afraid. They're afraid of the repercussions that would come from speaking. You talk about the stratified hierarchy. Can you just explain in its simplest terms who the government are, who runs Qatar? The government is, uh, so it's a hereditary monarchy um, linked to the El Thani family. Um, and the emir uh, is currently uh, Sheikh Tamim. Our region has suffered for so long. Hosting the World Cup will give hope to the youth across the region. He runs the country, but uh, not solely in isolation. There's also a, um, like a sort of... Uh, body called the uh, Shura Council, which acts a, a bit like a parliament, um, and there are voices in there. Um, uh, but And there's also kind of local elections in which citizens vote. So uh, it's, it's not, there aren't political parties. Um, and like, you know, freedom of speech is heavily constrained. So it's definitely not like, uh, a, you know, don't have in mind the conception of Britain or, or some Western democracy. But at the same time, uh, there are channels in which kind of criticism or or different opinions, especially within the the, the 350,000 or so who are Qatari, um, there's profound disagreements in there. Um, and I think that's an important element to understand as well, that we can't even really talk about, quote unquote, a Qatar, because of profound differences. I, I've met Qataris who wish the country never had the World Cup. And I, I've met other ones who are just cannot wait for the tournament and are desperate to welcome everyone and to help show them what their country is about and what the Middle East is like. Who would have said we want to get the World Cup? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, it's a very good question. I'm actually not sure. Philippe might uh, have more of an in on that. I, I find it fascinating, John, actually. It's a question that I've asked myself from very, very early on. And I didn't get any definite answers. What is certain is that the idea of using sport uh, as a means to promote Qatar, but also to guarantee Qatar's security, because Qatar, let's not forget that, is a very tiny country surrounded by people who don't like them very much at all. I remember the blocus and um, the embargo in 2017. So the, more, the better known you are, the safer you are in a way. And sport has been a way for that. And it, they didn't wait for the World Cup, uh, the 2022 World Cup, to you know bid 
to, to do this. They had organized other competitions before. They had been unsuccessful in their pursuit of the 2020 Olympic Games, uh, which actually taught them an awful lot. And what my understanding of it is that the team which was at the heart of the 2020 Olympic Games bid thought, okay, we've got to do things differently now. And it was mostly younger people who were pushing this, this project forward. And I think these tensions have always been there. I mean, John, you know, you know better than I do, but the tension between the reformers and the traditionalists is, uh, it's like, for example, uh, when you read Doha News was for a while the most, uh, the f freest, if there's such a word, uh, publication in the Gulf, in the region. Then there was a backlash against them. It, it's a very odd and ambiguous and paradoxical country uh, in that respect. Do people like football there? People love f football. Qataris love football. And I think this is one of the, you know, as Philippe said a bit earlier, when thinking about Qatar, it's important to kind of discount the canards and the other kind of falsities that kick around. Uh, yeah, obviously, Qatar doesn't have like the sort of football pedigree that Western Europe or South America has. But it's completely wrong and false to, to say that it's a place that doesn't like football, that doesn't have a history of football. Um, you know, part the Middle East region in general is a fanatical place for football. And that's inevitably the case in Qatar. Yeah, the Qatar Stars League is not one of the globe's most uh, prestigious. Um, yes, stadiums are not full of 50,000 people for every match, um, but they're not the only benchmarks by which uh, passion and involvement in football should be understood, especially in the 21st century. Let's talk about the, the Qatari football team, job because you sort of say winning the Asian Cup in 2019 is sort of the biggest achievement for this country. Like beyond sport, in terms of just generally, like, I mean, I don't know what other achievements countries can have, really, apart from wars. But but I I understand the point you're trying to make. Yeah, I mean, yes, uh, it's a football podcast, and I, we're all a bit probably unhealthily uh, sunk into that world. So obviously, winning uh, international football tournaments, what what else can what what else is is important in life? Um, but no, I mean, the size of Qatar, they have something like uh, seven and a half thousand registered footballers in the country you know there's probably more in Croydon um, and yet they managed to win the Asian Cup the, which is the equivalent of the European Cup uh, but for a continent with a lot more people than there are in Europe um, so yeah that was a phenomenal achievement uh, and I don't want to steal Philippe's thunder because he's very uh, he's been following the team for a long time and is very interested in the project which brought it to fruition but yeah, just in short, you know, it's a remarkable project which has involved quite a lot of forward planning, money, of course, but also a lot of nows. And I think it's important to, you know, understand that you know not everything, again, in Qatar is horrendously run or, you know, terrible. I mean, the, the way they went about it, the, the, the first uh, thing they did was uh, they used uh, an old tactic, uh, which has also been used by other countries, by the way. Uh, East Timor is one. Uh, China is another one that comes to mind, which is basically you naturalize players. That's much easier. You, you get them. They're all ready. And for a while, Qatar had uh, uh, players who were naturalized basically had been bought like a club would buy players. Then they thought, mm, uh, that's not quite right. Uh, that doesn't look too good. And also it's not really working. At the time uh, when on the 2nd of December 2010, when Seb Ladder opened the envelope and took a piece of paper with Qatar written on it, uh, Qatar was, I think, at the 106th or 107th in the FIFA World Rankings. It's really, really bad. And what they've done, 
they've engaged on a huge program. And I know that John devoted a, a chapter, I believe, of his book to, to that program, which is called Aspire, um, which is a huge program of detection, uh, coaching, formation, uh, coaching of young players throughout the world. Uh, I believe that over 3.5 million youngsters have been supervised by scouts employed by this program. 3.5 million, Max. Those who were really good were could be uh, taken to Aspire, uh, to various Aspire center, regional centers. If they were really, really, really good, they could actually go to the Aspire center, which is in Doha, and then become their training as uh, future professional footballers, hopefully. So that was one way of getting of getting talent. And one thing which is very interesting is that of the 23 players who were part of the group which won the Asian Cup, 17 didn't have a Qatari a proper Qatari passport. Yeah, so I think it's um it's important to understand that of those 17, like the vast majority of them were born in Qatar. So uh, you know, it, and if that was the case, then uh, in most countries around the world, they would be citizens. So you know, uh, you're born in the UK, you obviously have a right to citizenship. Or um, if you move to the UK, you have a right to citizenship after a while. Um, that's not the case in Qatar. It has a very strict uh, rules when it comes to citizenship. So uh, basically, I you have to be descended from a Qatari really to be eligible. Um, there's no citizenship by birth. There's no citizenship by like residence in terms of staying long enough. But yeah, with the Qatari national team. Uh, you know, a lot of these players, the training camps uh, overseas, um, I have to say, uh, the idea behind that was to bring good players to Qatar to boost the level of the national team. So they, they were never trying to, this is what they say. I mean, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'll leave it to you to decide, you know, what you want to say. But um, the, they brought them to Qatar to make the national team more competitive. It was never to basically stuff the team with Paraguayans and Brazilians and whatnot. Um, so it was more like, if we're going to get good, we have to play good people and we're not going to find them in Qatar. So, uh, let's, let's bring people over from overseas. I gauge from, from a sort of frustration in you, the, the way that the narrative is, everything is terrible. And I'm, I'm sort of expecting, I was expecting you to say everything is terrible. I'm expecting the pods that we do after this one for it to be, everything is terrible. And I sense that probably a lot of people who haven't been there, like you have a lived experience, albeit a, you know, a Westerner going in and seeing it. That's a key point. Um, and part of why I've, I've kind of gone down this line is because I know from conversations with Philippe that you're going to have on the podcast other people who are going to talk in depth about the situation of low-income workers, the situation of women, the situation of sexual minorities. And I think very much so if you fall into those categories... Uh, your experience of Qatar is very different to mine and far less enjoyable. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't want your listeners to think by the emphasis that I've placed here is discounting those other opinions. But I just know that you know the Guardian Football Weekly are, as as you said at the start of this segment, yeah, trying to offer a broad range of opinions onto the place. And I feel like my kind of my perspective as someone in my position interested in the Middle East, anthropologist, was to fill in some of these other elements. But it's important not to let them uh, to, you know, use them to sort of whitewash the, the frankly awful experiences of too many people there.
your view is is very balanced and actually i think quite a few people are going to say what's what's the guardian saying there that that you know that they're saying not saying that qatar is all right but they're actually given a different point of view on on it which is more balanced but that's the only way having a balanced point of view which enables you to afterwards to criticize properly because otherwise you know it means nothing but it is an epitome you have to say i mean would you agree with me john i don't know but for me it's epitome of everything that is wrong that's the same way that what happened with fifa in in 2010 was the epitome of all that had gone wrong with fifa was concentrated on that single moment. And who did they choose? Russia and Qatar. I mean, come on. You know, that's, you couldn't do worse than that. Yes? No? I completely right. And by choosing this place, I 100% agree with you that by choosing uh, this country, uh, you're obviously making a statement about, uh, about, you know, what you see as, as, you know, the direction that you want football to take in a way. Um, uh, but, you know, as someone who has spent uh, most of their adult life tr- like trying to understand and also uh, better regions of the world that aren't the West, um, I think it's uh, personally, I just feel really annoyed that uh, this first tournament in the Middle East, that this, it will, you know, in, there could have been a, a real ability to help uh, shed some light on a poorly understood region, to give people in the region a lot of excitement about football and the world looking at them. And, uh, you know, just because of the way it, it came to Qatar, rightly so, we, we, obviously we need to talk about um, all the poor, poor, poor stuff that has gone on and, and how, um, you know, it, it, in many ways it, it perhaps shouldn't have gone there. But um, it's just such a shame that... that this can't we can't talk about that and we shouldn't talk about it because these other things are more important and finally john we grapple and have grappled ever since this happened and ever since we started talking about it about and once again you you try not to be too preachy so i think you'll probably find this question annoying as well can i you know it's can you just sit there and watch the football and go oh great i've got four games today the first one's at 10 in the morning then i can have some lunch then i can open a beer watch the second one then watch the last two and then sort of go to bed full up and half drunk and had a great day with a clear conscience it's the question of to what extent can you ignore the issues of power and inequality of money in football more broadly right and this is your your podcast wrestles with this weekly you know People draw the line or there is a spectrum, right? And I personally, seeing as I've, you know, written an entire book on the thing, I, I my short answer would be no, you should you should be a bit aware of the wider power structures, both within global football and also, you know, within the region that has led to this tournament happening. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the football, um, but I kind of feel like that with the Premier League, you know, you should be aware of of what, you know, how Newcastle United uh, came to be owned by, uh, you know, Saudi investors. You should be aware of these structures of power, really. And yeah, maybe that will take the edge off your enjoyment. You know, I feel like, I don't know, it, sticking our heads in the sand is not the way that will improve football. Um, the way we'll improve football is by building up enough momentum and voices for people who want to uh, campaign for change. John, thanks so much for coming on. I'm almost certain we will call on you again. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. (laughs) You're very welcome. Thanks, Max. Inside Qatar, Hidden Stories from One of the Richest Nations on Earth is written by John McManus. Uh, Buy it and read it, please. Um, Philippe, thanks for your time, mate. Thank you very much, Max. Uh, Barry, thank you. Thanks, Max.
Of course, we only felt it right to reach out to the various organizations with some of the allegations that have been made uh, in this podcast. Uh, bear with us. Uh, the responses are quite long, but if you want the whole story, you need to listen to all of it. A FIFA spokesperson told us that allegations linked to the FIFA World Cup 2018 and 2022 bidding process have already been extensively commented on. They referred us to the so-called Garcia Report published in 2017. We'll include a link to that on the episode page if you really want to read it. Uh, they said that since the election of Gianni Infantino as president in 2016, FIFA had gone from, quote, being toxic, almost criminal, to what it should be, a solid and well-respected organisation that develops football. They told us that FIFA has implemented, quote, extensive reforms to improve transparency, in particular financial transparency and business performance. They told us that a key element of the reforms was the introduction of a revamped bidding process for World Cup hosts, quote, including a clear evaluation process with bid books, reports and scores made public. Further to this, they told us that the final decision is now made by the 211 member associations in an open vote as opposed to a secret vote by the executive committee. When we reached out to the Qatari government, a spokesperson told us that they were extremely disappointed by our decision to deliberately exclude Qatari and Arab voices and that the assumption that the safety of any person testifying about their experience in Qatar would be at risk is an unfounded and baseless claim that goes against Qatar's core principles of dialogue and engagement as the best means to effect change. They said that Qatar encourages differing perspectives and an independent open press. Qatar is a supporter and protector of the freedom of expression in the region. And also said that many of the allegations put forward are categorically false and paint an inaccurate picture of the reality in Qatar. Referring to Qatar winning the bid for the World Cup in 2022, they told us this was done, quote, fairly while adhering to all rules and regulations of the 2018-2022 process. Going on to say there have been numerous investigations and not one has found any evidence of foul play from Qatar. A statement on behalf of the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy said that they were quote, 100% confident in the integrity of our bid, stating that throughout the entire process, they strictly adhered to the regulations that were in place. They also told us that they cooperated fully with investigations for the Garcia report and reiterated their integrity and conduct throughout the bidding process and to this date. This part was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer was Max Sands. This is The Guardian.